What a great reading, what a great account that John gives of the gospel, the crucifixion of Christ in chapter 20 of John's gospel. What a reminder of what Christ went through. That's how we would think, isn't it? Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. And we think for a moment, and we look at Christ and we see what he went through. He went through so much for us. Then knowing who he is, we think, you went through that. The Son of God, the King of glory, you went through that. And it's astonishing to us. On Good Friday, we remember Jesus' suffering and his ill treatment, his painful death on the cross, And the entire context that we just heard read from John chapter 20 is just wrong, (laughs) bizarre, strange, unreal. Jesus is the only innocent man. Jesus is the one true king of the Jews and of all peoples. Pilate, The Jewish religious leaders, the Jewish people, the Roman soldiers, everybody gets everything wrong. In one sense, it's frustrating. What could possibly make Jesus go through this? But in the truest sense, this is the sovereign will and purpose of God. And Jesus went through this because it was his will too. We know this to be true from Luke chapter 22. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 22. I'm going to read verses 39 to 46. This is is where the real decision was made. This is where Jesus settled everything as far as cementing his will to go to the cross. They were in the upper room. It was after the Last Supper. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And he appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him, and being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Pretty significant night. And yet Jesus went about what he was custom to doing. It was his his custom to pray. And when they left the upper room, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, went with his disciples. They walked to the Garden of Gethsemane at the foot of the Mount of Olives, to pray, to talk to Jesus' heavenly Father. 
because talking to his father was his custom. It's not hidden here that Satan is behind the forces that oppose Jesus throughout John's gospel, but at his temptation way back at the beginning, and here at his Passion Week, Satan directly challenges Jesus. And so Jesus, caring for his sheep, the disciples, twice tells them to pray that God, to God that they would not enter into temptation. Because Satan is, certain, Satan is certainly afoot and going to cause them to not stand with Jesus. For Jesus, there was one glaringly obvious thing to pray about. His pre-planned death on the cross. I mean, that is, that's what's in view. And so he prayed. You can look at these words. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup. And the only way to make sense of this passage is to understand that Jesus did not want to drink this cup. Throughout the Old Testament, the cup represented God's wrath poured out on judgment. This cup represents Jesus' death. The wrath of the Father poured out on the Son in judgment for the sins of the elect. The key ingredient that Jesus wants to avoid is this separation. We can't imagine separation like this. We can't, we try, and we should continue to try to understand the oneness of God the Father and God the Son. The key ingredient here is that the loving Son does not want to be separated from his loving Father. And certainly not in this particular way. The righteous son does not want to experience the just wrath of his holy father. But only if the father's willing. Only if it's God's will. Because Jesus is completely bound to do his father's will. Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was willing to serve his Father's plan and purpose. He made the Father's will his own. And in doing so, in doing what God wanted him to do, in doing what his Father wanted him to do, planned, laid out for him to do, he accomplished the redemption of many. He brought many sons to glory. A number no man can count. I think this prayer should revive our will to pray, in particular for the Father's will. Believers are sons and daughters of Christ. He's our Father. We should want to do His will the way Jesus did His will. We should be willing to say in every circumstances, Father, there's this thing going on here and I don't want to do it if you're willing for me to not do it. But nevertheless... Not my will, but your will be done. That should be our attitude towards the Father every day and in all things. Knowing what Jesus has accomplished for us, when we see Jesus' will to do the Father's will, he surely revives our will to pray for the Father's will. Surely the Father's will is best. Does anybody think the Father's will is best? I think so. <laughs> I think so. 
as daunting a task as it may look, even if it looks like a cup to drink. It's best. Can't you hear the Lord's Prayer echoing on the Mount of Olives as Jesus prays? Can you hear that? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And you disciples, you pray that you would not be led into temptation. You pray that you would be delivered from evil because Satan's afoot trying to get you to not stand with Jesus. Considering what's at stake, realizing what Jesus accomplished by the Father's will, surely the Spirit and the Word are reviving our wills to do the Father's will even tonight. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me nevertheless. Not my will, but yours. But how can we know the Father's will? How did Jesus come to know the Father's will? Well, turn to John chapter 12 and find verse 44. In John's gospel, this is, the, this is where Jesus puts a period on his ministry to the public and those who have rejected him, his people who did not know him, and turns and faces his disciples and leads them marching all the way to the cross. And this is what he says in verse 44. Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say, as the Father has told me. This is kind of amazing. I mean, Jesus is God's agent, such that if you see Jesus, you see God. And if you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. In his high priestly prayer later, Jesus even says, I and the Father are one. There is this oneness with God the Son and God the Father. And so it's no surprise that he speaks the Father's words. He speaks the Father's words. Everything Jesus says is the Father's word. Everything. And everything Jesus does is by the Father's authority. Everything. Did Jesus say and do amazing things? They are all backed by the Father's authority and the Father's word. We know Jesus to be the living word of God. And as such, he's constrained 
by the word of God the Father. I think that's an important word for us to understand. It maybe fits us a little better than it does Jesus. You would think that Jesus, as he comes down from heaven, takes on the form of a man. You know, he can kind of do anything he wants, right? I mean, my goodness. He's the God-man on earth. And yet, everything he did, every thought he thought, word he spoke, deed he did, thing he accomplished was constrained by the word of God. Bound by the word of God. In accordance with the word of God. You see, we're supposed to be able to say that about ourselves, or, or at least to say that's what we want, or at least to say that's what we're pursuing very best we can, that we're doing every single thing according to the very word of God. My life is constrained by the word of God. My words to my wife are constrained by the word of God. My actions in public are constrained by the word of God. I won't break out of that. I'm bound by it. Because that's how Jesus lived, brothers and sisters. I don't know if you look at the word of God as something meant to constrain you. Something that you want to live within. (laughs) Stay in your lane, Christian. Stay in your lane. It's a good lane. It's the narrow road. It leads to life. It's where we're meant to be. And this, and this is amazing that Jesus is described this way. Jesus describes himself this way. Jesus doesn't just ever do what he wants. He always does what the Father wants. And we love Jesus, and we think he's pretty fantastic, because he is. He did everything according to the Father. Jesus is the living word of God, and as such, he's constrained by the word of God the Father. And being constrained, or we could say obedient, obedient to the word of God produces only good things. This is what we need to be revived in. This is what we need to be convinced of. That if we would do the word of God, it will produce only good things. Only good things. For instance, like Good Friday. If you want to look in verse 49, the Father has given the Son a commandment. And in verse 50, that commandment is eternal life, which means the word of the Father not only characterizes who Jesus is, not only sanctions Jesus' trip down to earth and his ministry here, but it actually leads Jesus to the cross. Because the command for life necessitates Jesus going to the cross. And so Jesus, when he speaks the Father's words, he speaks the command that leads to the cross. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. In verses 47 and 48, If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I did not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You see? You see, the same word that proclaims life and forgiveness to the believer proclaims condemnation and wrath to the unbeliever. The same word embodied in Jesus Christ. And this wrath is the impending judgment on unbelievers. 
now, even this time, this evening, is the time of salvation for you if you have not been born again of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right here, at this point in time, is the time of salvation. If you would believe in Jesus and God the Father who sent him to redeem ruined sinners by his blood as a substitute for you on the cross, the cross represents your just punishment for your sins against the holy God. See Jesus in place of you there. That's the gospel. Believe in Christ. He was willing to go to the cross to receive the wrath of God upon himself, not for his sins, he's the righteous one, but for your sins, which he took upon himself. Forgiveness of sins is available to you from God, through Christ. Repent and call on Jesus and be saved. Don't be shy. Don't be clever. Just be humble. And receive forgiveness. Because Jesus truly accomplished salvation on the cross. Jesus and his body truly atoned for your sins against the Father if you'd believe in him. It's amazing, Jesus said, not my will, but your will. It's amazing that Jesus said, not my words, but your words. And then in verse 30 of our, or in uh, John chapter 19, verse 30, which was read tonight, Jesus says, it is finished. It is finished. What is finished? The atonement for your sins. The payment for your sins. The penalty intended for you, he took upon himself. That's what's finished. That's got to revive us. That's got to make us see fresh and anew. And with affection, Jesus Christ our Savior. And in two ways, you can see them in, at the bottom of your sermon outline. He revives us to believe God's gospel word. Turn with me. Uh, if you would, just for a second to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul writes, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It's what theologians call the double imputation. Jesus didn't have sins. How did he get them? Well, our sins were imputed to him. Jesus died for those sins. We don't have righteousness. How did we get it? Jesus' righteousness was imputed to us. It was given to us. It's, it's the greatest bargain of all of history. Jesus took what was ours, sin, and gave us what was his, righteousness, so that we might stand before the Father with a true, loving, living, honest Righteous relationship with the God who made us. It's amazing. It's an amazing gospel. This word that is Jesus is the word that we have to share with others. 
And so we're to be revived in this gospel word. It was the commandment of eternal life that we just read about in John 12. So may we be revived by God's gospel word and be, be transformed into ever-increasing righteousness. The second way is this. He revives us to live God's gospel will. God's gospel will. Look at Luke chapter 9. Find verse 23. Remember when Jesus said this. As we look at Jesus on the cross tonight, remember when he said this. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Let him deny his own will. And take up his cross daily and follow me. Take up the Father's will. Take up your cross. Bear it for Jesus, for whoever would save his life will lose it. I know the world tells us that it's the exact opposite of that. Have your best life now. Get what you can. Do what you want. It's not true. For whoever would save his life like that will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus would just have us follow after him. To take up a cross of daily living for Christ. To take up God's will and live it as Jesus lived it. It's all by God's authority. Who can bring an argument against your life if you're living under God's authority? No one. No one. If you're living under God's authority. And so we pray that we'd be revived by God's redeeming will to do God's will in our lives. When we see what Jesus, constrained by the word of God, committed to do the will of God, accomplished, which only he could, the salvation of sinners and the gift of eternal life for all who would believe in him. We've got to be a little bit excited about what being constrained by the word of God in our lives, being committed to do the will of God, might accomplish right here. In us and through us and around us. It would bring about far better than what we would bring about by following our wills, wouldn't it? Now let's pray that we would be revived to do the will of God according to the word of God. Oh Lord, revive us to take up our cross that we would walk in the light of Jesus who was constrained by his Father's will, his Father's word to, to do his Father's will for the purpose of eternal life and all for your glory. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.